Well, good morning. If you'd like to take your Bibles out and open them up. Look at me trying to open my songbook up. Let's take our Bibles out and open them up to the book of Mark. We'll be reading from there in just a moment. Mark chapter 10, where we're going to begin our study this morning. As you're turning there, I would like to thank you all for your, your attendance here. It is so good to see so many of you. Many of you I know are, are struggling with, with illnesses and sicknesses that have uh, come upon with this, this constant changing weather. And we've had heat and cold and rain. And, and it's just hard for our bodies to, to overcome some of the things that we're experiencing. But yet you've chosen to be here with us. You encourage me. I hope that I can encourage you. I've been so thankful uh, over these past couple days to think about the great congregation, the great family that we have here, um, and the, the way that you press me to be a better Christian, a better, a better form of myself. And I hope that in my lesson today, I can help you to do the same thing, to press on towards serving God in a more full way. In Mark chapter 10 we read a, a passage that is not beloved by the world that we live in today. It is easy to see with the, the circumstances that, that many people live in. Uh, and it is a difficult passage. It is difficult teaching that even required Jesus' apostles, His disciples, to say, can we talk about that some more? I need to understand that a little bit more uh, even in our passage. So as we read this today, I want us to read it remembering that what Jesus is saying here is, is important. What Jesus is saying here is applicable to us, but we have to understand it in light of what He's saying in that first century to these first century people. Let's read this together. Mark chapter 10, verses 1-12. through 12. Then He arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And multitudes gathered to Him again, and as He was accustomed, He taught them again. The Pharisees came and asked Him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? testing him. <clears throat> and he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. In the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same manner, uh, matter. So he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now first, before we get into this, I want us to just to think for a moment about the setting, the context of this passage. Jesus is entering into Judea. In chapter 11, we find Him entering into Jerusalem, the triumphant entry, uh, the beginning of this, this week-long period of Jesus' life that ultimately culminates with His death on the cross. This is where Jesus is heading. Jesus is on His way to the cross and He's met with this question, this topic. And this topic is never a pleasant topic. Over the past several, several weeks, talking with other people about this topic, preparing for this lesson, I mentioned how much I despise this topic. 
I despise the fact that we have to talk about this. I despise the fact that God had to teach about this. It is never a preacher's intent when he wakes up on a Sunday morning to say, yes, today I get to talk about divorce. It is not something that any preacher that I know of loves to talk about. But if Jesus, knowing that in a, just a matter of days His death was imminent, was willing to give it the attention that it deserves at that point, we should be willing to give it the attention that it deserves today at this point as well. So I want to look at some of the things that we learn from this. Number one, I want to draw your attention to the text that says the Pharisees were testing Jesus. They bring this to Jesus as a test to see how He is going to respond. And that hasn't changed in our day today. People still bring this question and ask very much the same thing that they're asking. Is it lawful for me to divorce? Now in Matthew's account, Matthew adds to this. In Matthew 19, 9, uh, or in, in Matthew chapter 19, he says, Is it lawful for me to divorce my wife for any cause? Mark leaves that out. Mark's going to leave some other things out. We're going to get to that in a minute. Why I believe Mark does that. But this is the underlying question that they're asking. Can I divorce my spouse? And look how Jesus responds. He says, what did Moses command? Essentially, Jesus does what we should do today every time we're faced, not just with hard issues, not just with difficult conflict. He says, what's the Word of God say? That's where I'm going to turn you back to. When you come to me and you ask these hard questions, I'm just going to turn you right back to the Word of God and say, what does the Word of God say? And so he says, what did Moses command you? And their response is verse 4, Moses permitted, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send his wife away. They are talking about Deuteronomy 24. Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 through 4 is this teaching that they are bringing up in regard to what Moses says. Now, what Jesus is going to respond with them is that this allowance, this permission that you're talking about is not given to you because of some righteousness. It's given to you because of wickedness. In fact, it's not even a command. In truth, Moses never commanded anything regarding divorce. He commanded how divorce was to be treated when it happened, but nowhere did Moses command them to divorce their wives. Why? As Jesus points out, because from the beginning, God made man, God made marriage, and they shouldn't be messing with that. So in this very quick snapshot of this discussion that, that, that Mark is recording for us with Jesus and his Pharisees, the question is asked, can we lawfully divorce our wives? And Jesus answers, no, you cannot. Now, he also tacks a warning onto that in verses 11 and 12. But there's something missing from that warning. Again, I told you, Mark leaves out some things in this account. What is missing is the one exception that he makes for divorce. And we're going to get to that exception. I'm not going to ignore that exception. We need to know about it. But we also need to know what's the purpose of the book of Mark. As we've talked about a couple times in these series, Mark is a man on a mission. When you go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1, he begins, this is the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is Mark's mission. 
I am going to tell my audience, a primarily Roman audience that he wrote to, I am going to tell my audience who Jesus is and why they should listen to him. Matthew, Matthew's going to talk a lot about what Jesus says. Matthew's going to talk a lot about how Jesus fulfills prophecy. Not Mark. Mark is not really interested in that. Mark is interested in getting his audience to know Jesus is the Son of God by power. Jesus is the Son of God by action. He's the Son of God by authority. And so he starts those first two chapters out showing that he has authority over creation. He has authority over demons. He has authority over illnesses. He has authoritative teaching. And now, in chapter 10, he is telling his audience he even has authority over marriage. He is over top of that. And so thus, when it comes to the exception, is there an exception? Yes. Absolutely there is. Does it help Mark's purpose any? No. It doesn't. There is an exception. We're going to give to it. But Mark leaves it out, I believe, for that reason. Because his purpose is to show not a teaching about marriage and divorce and remarriage. His purpose is to show Jesus is over top of marriage. And that should get, leave us with an underlying understanding of what is going on here. Having said that, I want to look at this passage and I want to say, what am I supposed to take from this today? Here in 21st century America, I'm not a 1st century Jew in Judea. I'm not near Jerusalem. I'm not living in that time. What is this supposed to mean to me? It hasn't changed a whole lot in what it's supposed to mean to us from what it meant to them. I want to begin with looking at some of the things that Jesus brings up in His teaching. First is, nothing to do with their question. The first is, who can actually be married? He begins by saying, God made them male and female. You are either one or the other. God didn't make some that were a little male and a little female. God made them male and female, and He looked at His creation and said it was good. Jesus is beginning at a very fundamental stage saying, look, the first thing we have to get through our minds to understand when it comes to this question of is it lawful for me to divorce is who was there in the beginning? God. And what did God do? God made them male and female. He did not give us a choice in that. He did not... Uh, allow us to at some point in the future say, well, I think that I'm going to not be male anymore. I'm going to be female. He made us the way we are and we don't get to pick and choose. But not only does He say that, He also says that God made them male and female and God joined male to female. Again, who may be married? Those who have been created by God, male and female, and male is to marry female. Male cannot marry male. Female cannot marry female. Male cannot marry female that thinks she is male. There is so much confusion over this in our world today. And I want you to know that it's not new. In Jesus' day, there was just as much confusion. There was just as much a problem with people who wanted to say, I'm not going to be a male anymore. I'm going to be a female. And vice versa. And Jesus is telling them, to understand this question, we go all the way back to the beginning and look at what happened in the beginning. God created everything. God created marriage. God joined the male and the female that He created together, provided these things are true, provided that they are not bound to someone else. Now, He's looking back to Adam and Eve. 
There was nobody else. But in their day, now there is a host of people. And God is saying, or Jesus is saying, that God joins together one man to one woman, provided that they are not married to anybody else. We're going to get to that in just a moment, but ultimately what he is painting the picture for us here is who can be married? One man plus one woman equals lawfully married in the eyes of God. Now, we need to see very clearly that lawfully married in the eyes of God is not the same as lawfully married in the eyes of man. Lawfully married in the eyes of man is, is completely open to man's interpretation. Thus, we have in our world today men marrying men and women marrying women. And that is completely okay in the eyes of man, in the eyes of our government. Those things are completely acceptable. Just because man sees it doesn't mean God sees it. What Jesus does is He starts out saying, this is what God recognizes as a marriage. One man, one woman, who belong to nobody else, God will join them together. So, having that understanding that God created man, God created marriage, what do we learn then about is it lawful for us to divorce? And as I've already pointed out, Jesus' answer underlying everything is no. It is not. And that is going to be the default answer that we see throughout Scripture. And we need to understand that. Default. Being whenever we come to the problem of divorce, the underlying answer to that is always going to be no, it is not okay. Is there an exception? I've said there is. I know there is. There is an exception. But if we would approach, if we would approach, if we approach marriage the way that the Pharisees do, saying, is there a way for me to get out of this? Then we're never going to have this understanding that Jesus had, which was, the, the way that we approach it is God joined man and woman together, period. That is going to be our understanding. God joined them together. We're not going to separate that. Is divorce okay? No, divorce is not okay. What if, the Mar- what if the Pharisees had come to Him and asked this question instead? Instead of saying, Jesus, teacher, what can we do to get out of our marriages? Is it lawful for us to divorce? What if they'd come and said, Jesus, how can we make our marriages more like what God wants? What kind of different teaching would Jesus have given? If people in our world today would come to their marriages and come to God and say, not can I legally in your eyes leave this marriage, but rather how can I make my marriage more Christ-centric? How can I do that? How can I make my my marriage more revolving around Christ? What kind of difference will we see in the world today? We need to understand that at the core of our understanding of, of divorce, God looks down on it without favor. You read passages in Malachi. God speaks about hating divorce. He says that it covers uh, our, uh, a man's garments in violence. It is painful. Painful for the people involved. Painful for the children. Painful for the family. God never looks upon divorce with favor. And so we should always come to it with this default answer going on to know that what Jesus says next is divorce causes adultery. In verses 11 and 12, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, I want to just pause for a minute here because this is really going to help establish that exception that we're going to look at in just a moment. 
We need to understand what he's saying here when he says adultery because all too often we take these terms that we don't like to talk about. I don't like to talk about them. We take these terms and we water them down to make them a little more palatable. We need to see what he says. First of all, turn over to 1 Corinthians 6. Just kind of, if you've got a ribbon, keep your, finger, uh, your ribbon there. But turn over to 1 Corinthians 6. In 1 Corinthians 6, we learn something about adultery. And that is we learn what it's not. In verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetousness, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. He's telling them, you cannot be this and be a part of the kingdom of God. You cannot be this and expect to spend eternity with God in heaven. And notice he mentions two things there that are separate from one another. And that is adultery is not the same thing as fornication. They are different. Maybe your translation has sexual immorality. The King James, the New King James Version, a lot of your older translations choose the word fornication. It's not a word we really use that often anymore. But sexual immorality is a very graphic depiction of that. That is that we are talking about an immoral act revolving sex. He says those are two different things. Now the Greek word that he uses for adultery is different than the word that they use for sexual immorality. The Greek word is morehuo, and it means intercourse with a married person who is not your spouse. It's very specific. Adultery is intercourse with a married person who is not your spouse. Now that is different from the word that is used for fornication or sexual immorality. That word is the word pornea. It is the root word that we have for pornography. And what that word means is physical intercourse with anyone. It's not confined to that within a relationship of someone who is in marriage. Just physical intercourse, physical interaction outside of marriage. Whether that be between male and female, male and male. Whether that be including some other sort of, of, of creature in that, uh, in that relationship. This is what God is talking about when He talks about sexual immorality and when he talks about adultery. And he says, divorce causes adultery. Now we begin to see why we have that provided statement. God will join them, male and female, provided they are not male to some, married to someone else. Because in doing so, they are committing adultery. Intercourse with someone who is not your spouse, but is married. So that brings us then to Jesus' exception. He does make an exception in Matthew 19 and verse 9. And it's very important for us to read and understand this exception because He doesn't make it there so that we can ignore it. Sometimes we treat it like, well, this really, it's not important. The underlying thing is God doesn't want us to divorce. Yes, the underlying thing is God doesn't want us to divorce. But God gives us the exception for a reason. He says, I say to you, and I'm going to challenge you in Matthew 19.9 to read this just a little bit differently than it's probably in your translation. Leave the exception out and read it at the end of the sentence. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. There is what, Matthew, or what Mark records. Mark records Jesus' statements without the exception. Then, Matthew includes, except for sexual immorality 
except for Pornia. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another, divorces her husband and marries another, commits adultery except if it be for the cause of sexual immorality. This is the only exception that is provided throughout Scripture where the innocent party can lawfully divorce their spouse because they have been sexually immoral and remarry to another without causing adultery. Now, that is the only exception. But what that does is that brings up two very current issues that we deal with today. Two issues that are prevalent in our society today. The first one comes from a misunderstanding of that word sexual immorality. Specifically, the Greek word pornea. And that is the problem of pornography in our society. This is a rampant epidemic in our society that affects hundreds of thousands of people. Whenever we read about pornography in the lives of other people, whenever you hear about it in someone's marriage, you find out that it's that it destroys trust. It destroys relationships. It sinks families. And oftentimes people start to look for this as a cause to separate from their spouse who has been unfaithful. Usually quoting Matthew chapter 5. Turn over there with me. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. There Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So the question becomes, Can I divorce my wife, divorce my husband lawfully if they are addicted, if they are involved in pornography? The answer to that question defaultly is going to be no. We're going to look at it and say no. We're not going to separate from our spouses. But when we begin to look at the exception, can I separate from my spouse? Again, the answer is going to be no. And here's the reason why. Pornography is vile. Pornography is destructive. It's disgusting. It's a tragedy. I can't say enough terrible things about pornography because I know firsthand what it does. Because I've suffered with that in my life. It is a terrible, terrible problem. But we need to understand what Jesus is saying when He says that the only reason that we can divorce, the only exception is sexual immorality. Pornography is a graphic display of pornea being committed. Even in the word pornography, we see that being told to us. Graphic pornea. That means it's pictures. That means it's words. You know, sometimes we say that we shouldn't look at these things, but we'll listen to it. We'll read about it. That's just as wrong as looking at it. That's just as much lusting in the heart as seeing it, reading the word. Anywhere that pornea is graphically depicted, we are experiencing pornography. And as terrible as it is, Jesus says it causes us to commit adultery in our heart. But it is not an act of physical fornication. It is not an act of physical interaction, of physical intercourse. It is not sexual immorality. It is wrong on a thousand levels. I'm not making excuses for it. But we can't look to pornography and say this is our justification for leaving our spouses. 
We can look to it and say, if they have done this, they are committing adultery. But God didn't say, if they commit adultery, then I'm going to break the bonds. He said, if they commit sexual immorality, I will allow you to do that. We need to understand what's being said in Matthew chapter 5. He's saying on a very metaphorical level, whenever someone is involved in pornography, I see it the same as them committing adultery. But in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, Mark chapter 10, he is talking about physical interaction with somebody else that will dissolve the marriage. We must know that pornography is as big a problem as it is today. It's not grounds for divorce. That being said, if we struggle with it, or if our spouse struggles with it, they need our help. You need help. You need to stop. You need to know that you are destroying your family. You, you need to know that the things you are doing changes not only yourself on a, on a molecular level, it changes the way that you look at the opposite sex and it changes the way the opposite sex looks at themselves. And it needs to stop. And for spouses that have, uh, have others that are dealing with this, hold them accountable. Don't look at this and say, it's, it, it's just something that I'll just ignore. Hold them to stopping this. There's software we can use. There are things that we can use to say, I will allow you to see my actions. Let's pray for one another. But let's also stay together. Let's not sacrifice the relationship that God has joined together because of something like that. Pornography is a huge problem today. Again, it is not a cause for divorce. Another problem is mental divorce. Probably more so than pornography, we have found ways to talk and, and to twist this into being okay to allow us to usually remarry somebody. Mental divorce is the mindset that says, I am split up from my spouse for some reason other than sexual immorality. Very common in, in Jesus' day, Mark chapter 10, written on the backdrop that the Jewish rabbis taught what Moses was talking about in Deuteronomy 24. If you find something you don't like in your wife, you can write her certificate of divorce. Included even her cooking. If you don't like her cooking... Write her a certificate of divorce. Send her away. That'll be alright. That's what Moses was talking about. That's what the rabbis were teaching. This is the backdrop that Jesus makes these statements on. If we put our spouses away, if we divorce our spouses because we don't like their cooking, and we say, I will wait until they remarry because then they've committed adultery. And now I am free to marry somebody else. That is what mental divorce is all about. That's the underlying teaching of mental divorce. And I'm afraid that's not true. We can't approach marriage that way. Because what we see in that is someone who says, I will legally divorce my spouse, even though I have no right to do so. And whenever they remarry, I am going to now marry someone else and say I divorced them for some other reason. That's not true. We didn't divorce them for sexual immorality. We divorced them for whatever reason we have. And so people say, okay, okay, you're right. I didn't divorce them for sexual immorality, but now they are sleeping with somebody else. So now I'm, I'm saying now that I'm divorcing them because they're committing adultery. There's two problems with that. One is what we've already talked about with pornography. God treats adultery and sexual immorality differently. But number two is you're already divorced at this point. 
You can't divorce them again. You can't just divorce them in your mind. God recognizes divorce as something that happens even back in the days of Moses. It was seen as something that was given purposefully. Not just, well, think about it. And when we, when we apply that to getting married in the first place, we see how that starts to fall apart. When two people say, well, how about we just consider ourselves married? And we're going to build a life together. We would very quickly look at that and say, well, wait a minute. For you to be married, God has to join you together. There has to be a, a, a covenant that's entering into here that God is, is holding you both to. Even in our own country, we recognize there has to be a, a, a government agency of some sort that says we recognize this as a marriage. There's more to it than just saying, I'm going to decide now that I'm married to this spouse. Mental divorce treats it the same way. Mental divorce causes us at the very best to take a subject that's already difficult. It's already hard. Jesus' own disciples closest to Him said, whoa, if this is true, who can be married? This is tough. We need you to talk with us more about this. It's already a hard topic, and at the very best, what this does is it makes it even muddier. It makes it even more difficult. At the very worst, it's wrestling with God's words, getting them to bend into what we want. And throughout Scriptures over and over again, that is seen as sinful that is seen as wicked. So we learn these two things. We learn who may be married. We will learn who may be divorced. The last thing that we learn, and the thing that I want to spend the rest of our time focusing on, the thing that is far, far more important, I believe, today for us, is how do we protect ourselves from this? How do we guard our marriages so that this is never a problem? We never have to worry about, is it lawful? Mark chapter 10, in verses 6 through 8, Jesus says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. In Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 8, Jesus is telling us if you guard your marriage, you don't have to ask this question. You don't have to ask, is it lawful? And how you guard it is you unify. You come together and you be joined, truly joined by God. There is oneness there. That idea of one flesh is more than just God put two people together. But He put two people together that say, I want to be a part of you and you a part of me on, on a very complex level. It includes physical interaction. It includes spiritual interaction. It includes emotional and mental inter interaction. And yes... There is going to be conflict. There is going to be conflict in our marriages. God joining two people together doesn't solve that. It doesn't remove the conflict from their lives. Satan is so good at finding ways to bring conflict up and constantly push it into our faces. But being one says that we will be united in Christ despite the conflict. Even though conflict will arise, we are going to join ourselves around Christ and that makes all the difference. What that says, that says whenever conflict arises as the husband, I'm going to still lead my wife. I'm going to lead her the way Christ led the church. Why, the way He leads the church today. And wives, it says that even though conflict arises, I'm going to submit to my husband. And husbands, we have to look at that and say, okay, that doesn't mean that I'm, the, tri that I'm the, the tyrant. I'm the one that's marching through and dragging everybody along. Christ 
loves the church, gave Himself up for her, there has to be a level of humility and submission in our leadership as well. When we are united around that, Ephesians 5 and everything that Paul writes there about the way that a marriage reflects God's image, it reflects the church today, that can help us to guard our marriages. So I want you to remember this. The difference between triumph and tragedy is remembering to press in our marriages. Remembering to press. I want you to remember to pray together. Whether it be at the end of the day, before you go to bed, whether it be in the morning when you wake up, to take time away from your busy schedule to say, these are the things that are on my heart. These are the things that I'm struggling with. These are the things that I'm thankful for. To share those with one another and then share those with God. Go to Him and focus your life around His throne of grace and mercy. Remember to pray together. Remember to read together. Whether it be for a minute or two, whether it be for an hour, Holly knows every time we start reading together, I go, all right, we're going to read the, the, the book of Genesis tonight in one, like, like one setting. And I, there's no way on earth I would stay awake for the whole thing. There's no way I would make it through the whole book. And Holly's always like, okay, Kyle, I, I, that's a little bit too, too ambitious. Let's dial it back a little bit. We don't even agree on that. We don't even agree on what we're going to read. But we still try to make time to, greet, to, to read together. To open up God's Word and to be both fed by His Word together. This might sound trivial, but eat together. Spend time. So often we're, our, our lives are so fast and we're running one direction, we're running the other, and there's kids things that have to be done, there's school things, there's jobs, there's so much that pulls us apart at least once a week. Is that, I, mean, I, I, would, I would hope we could do more, but at least once a week say, look, we're having a meal together. We're sitting down. We're sharing in this meal together as a family. And sleep together. And I mean that in every sense of that word. I mean that you spend your time together sleeping in one room so often you hear today families that, that are putting on a show for the kids. They want everybody, you know, the kids think everything is okay. But as soon as the kids are in bed, mom goes one way, dad goes the other. They don't talk to one another. Or maybe, maybe there's not a fight, but there is a TV that's on. And dad's going to be in here watching TV while mom's going to be over here on Instagram and on Facebook. And we, we're in separate rooms and we end up falling asleep in separate places. And this most intimate time we spend in completely different rooms. I mean that in actually resting together. I mean that as well in meeting one another's needs together as well. Don't give Satan a foothold in your marriage for there to be ever a cause for divorce to arise. And lastly, serve together. When you start looking at your marriage and you start seeing all these problems that are wrong and I'm ready to get out of this, I'm, I'm tired of fooling with these, the problems of my spouse, Find something for you all to do together. We have a lot of, of shut-ins. We have a lot of widows. And I tell you what, you spend a little bit of time with them, you become humbled real quick at what they've endured, at what they still endure today, how bad they miss their spouses, even though their spouses didn't get everything right. And it makes me a little bit, a little bit ashamed when I think about the problems that I have with my spouse who's with me today. It makes me want to try and do a little bit better. So press. Press your marriages. Press yourselves closer to God. And I hope you noticed 
Yeah, press was the word that I highlighted, but together was the word that I repeated. If you don't do all these things, don't do all these things. But whatever you do, do it together. Spend time with one another because the world wants your attention. The world wants you over here and it wants you over there and it wants you dragging around. It wants your hobbies. It wants your job. And and even your family and your kids, they want your attention. They're pulling you. And we have to remember that God didn't join me to a hobby. God didn't join me to a job. And God didn't join me to my kids. He joined me to my spouse. And so sometimes I have to tell those things to take a hike. Literally, we've told the boys, just go take a hike. We're at Manus Farm. You all go. Enjoy yourselves. Get out of the house. Me and Mommy just need time to be together. Turn off social media. Turn off TV. Turn off distractions. And turn your focus to one another. How can I be a better husband? How can I be a better wife? How can I help? How am I hurting? How can we be more one with one another? Divorce. Divorce is still a huge problem today. I forget the number. It's gone down. I remember when I started preaching, it was something like 55% of marriages in divorce. It's less than 50. Last time I checked, last time I saw this, it was somewhere in the 40s. But it's still a big number. Karen's shaking her head, so maybe it's went back up. I don't know. But it's still a big number. It's still a problem. It's a huge problem that we have in our world today, and it's heartbreaking. And we need to stop listening to the world. When we come to the world and we see so many people going, it didn't work, we didn't make it, we need to stop listening to them. We need to start listening to the king, remembering he has authority over marriage. So couples, I challenge you to do is strengthen your marriages. And kids, kids, I challenge you to think hard about who you will be joined to when God joins you to another. Because Jesus is teaching us this is one man, one woman, and it's for life. It's till death do us part, not till conflict gets in the way and, and drives a wedge between us. And this morning, if hearing all this, you think to yourself, you know what? Maybe there's something in my marriage that's not right that I need to work on. Maybe even there's something in my marriage that causes me not to be bound in the eyes of God to the spouse that I'm with. What I challenge you to do is not set on that. Think about it. Pray about it. Come talk to me about it. And let's talk about it in private. Let's talk about it with one another. And let's find out what is it that God wants in our marriages. And if there's something that needs to change, how do I repent of that? Because I want God to be glorified. Divorce is a hard thing. I know there are those here today that have, that have str- struggled with that in the past. They've, they've, been, they've felt the pain of sexual immorality. And, and, and my heart breaks for you. What we need to do is say what we have now. What I have today, is it what God wants? And if not, how can I make it better? How can I glorify Him in my marriage? How can I glorify Him in my life? And that's where I'll leave you with this morning. Because that is our ultimate goal here at Lake Street is to glorify God in our lives. And maybe today, you look at your life and you realize, I haven't been doing that. There's things in my life that indicate that I've been sinful. Things in my life that indicate that I have transgressed His laws. How do I begin glorifying Him today? I want you to turn over to Romans chapter 6 with me.
Romans chapter 6, and I'm going to start reading in verse 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? Paul is telling the, the, the Roman audience, you want to be glorifying to God, choose to obey Him. Choose to follow Him. Verse 17, But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. We can be glorifying to God today by choosing today, I'm going to obey His doctrine because He is the Christ. He is the King. And He has authority over my life. And if we can help you with that this morning, I encourage you to come forward and let it be known as we stand and as we sing.